too. Carved and gilded mirrors were introduced by the Italians as were also sconces and glass chandeliers. It was a time of great magnificence, and shadowed forth the coming glory of Louis Exide. It seems a style well sweet to a large dining rooms and libraries in modern houses of importance. Louis Exide it is often a really difficult matter to decide the exact boundary lines between one period and another, for the new style shows its beginnings before the old one is passed and the old style still appears during the early years of the new one. It is an overlapping process and the years of transition are ones of great interest. As one period follows another it usually shows a reaction from the previous one, a somber period is followed by a gay one, the excessive ornament in one is followed by restraint in the next. It is the same law that makes us want cake when we have had too much bread and butter. The world has changed so much since the 17th and 18th centuries that it seems almost impossible that we should ever again have great periods of decoration like those of Louis XIV, Louis XV and Louis XVI. Then the monarch was supreme. Latatiest boy, said Louis XIV, and it was true. He established the great Gobelin works on a basis that made France the authority of the world and firmly imposed his taste and his will on the country. Now that this absolute power of one man is a thing of the past. We have the influence of many men forming and molding something that may turn into a beautiful epic of decoration, one that will have in it some of the feeling that brought the French Renaissance to its height, though not like it, for we have the same respect for individuality working within the laws of beauty that they had. The style that takes its name from Louis XIV was one of great magnificence and beauty with dignity and a certain solidity in its splendor. It was really the foundation of the styles that followed and a great many people look upon the periods of Louis XIV, the Regency, Louis XV and Louis XVI as one great period with variations, or UPS and Downs the complete swing and return of the pendulum. Louis XIV was a man with a will of iron and made it absolute law during his long reign of 72 years. His ideal was splendor, and he encouraged great men in the intellectual and artistic world to do their work, and shed their glory on the time. Condé, Turenne, Colbert. Moyer, Corneille, Lafon, Racine, Fenelon, Boulle, Elbrun, are a few among the long and wonderful list. He was indeed Louis the Magnificent, the Sun King. One of the great elements toward achieving the stupendous results of this reign was the establishment of the Manufacture des Mubles de l'Ocuron, or, as it is usually called, Manufacture des Gobelins. Artists of all kinds were gathered together and given apartments in the Louvre and the wonderfully gifted and versatile Brun was put at the head. Tapestry, goldsmith's work, furniture, jewelry, etc. were made, and with the royal protection and interest France rose to the position of worldwide supremacy in the arts. Brun had the same taste and love of magnificence as Louis, and had also extraordinary executive ability and an almost unlimited capacity for work. Combined with the power of gathering about him the most eminent artists of the time, André Charles Boulle was one, and his beautiful cabinets, commodes, tables, clocks, etc. are now almost priceless. He carried the inlay of metals, tortoise shell, ivory and beautiful woods to its highest expression, and the mingling of colors with the exquisite workmanship gave most wonderful effects. Sheets of white metal or brass were glued together and the pattern was then cut out. When taken apart the brass scrolls could be fitted exactly into the shell background, and the shell scrolls into the brass background, thus making two decorations. The shell background was the more highly prized. The designs usually had a renaissance feeling. The metal was softened in outline by engraving, and then ormolu mounts were added. 
ormolu or gilt bronze mounts, formed one of the great decorations of furniture. The most exquisite workmanship was lavished on them, and after they had been cast they were cut and carved and polished until they became worthy ornaments for beautiful inlaid tables and cabinets. The taste for elaborately carved and gilded frames to chairs, tables, mirrors, etc. developed rapidly. Mirrors were made by the Gobelins works and were much less expensive than the Venetian ones of the previous reign. Walls were painted and covered with gold with a lavish hand. Tapestries were truly magnificent with gold and silver threads adding richness to their beauty of color, and were used purely as a decoration as well as in the old utilitarian way of keeping out the cold. The Gobelins works made at this time some of the most beautiful tapestries the world has known. The massive chimney pieces were superseded by the petite cheminée and had great mirrors over them or elaborate over mantles. The whole era furnishing and decoration changed to a one of greater lightness and brilliancy. The ideal was that everything, no matter how small, must be beautiful. And we find the most exquisite workmanship lavished on window locks and doorknobs. Illustration, one of a set of three rare Louis X. Ivy chairs, beautifully carved and gilded and said to have belonged to the great Louis himself. In the early style of Louis X. Ivy, we find many trophies of war and mythological subjects used in the decorative schemes. The second style of this period was a softening and refining of the earlier one, becoming more and more delicate until it merged into the time of the Regency. It was during the reign of Louis X. Ivy that the craze for Chinese decoration first appeared. La Chinoiserie it was called, and it has daintiness and a curious fascination about it but many inappropriate things were done in its name. The furniture of the time was firmly placed upon the ground. The armchairs had strong straining rails, square or curved backs, scroll arms carved and partly upholstered and stuffed seats and backs. The legs of chairs were usually tapering in form and ornament with gilding, or marquetry, or richly carved, and later the feet ended in a carved leaf design. Some of the straining rails were in the shape of the letter X with an ornament at the intersection and often there was a wooden molding below the seat in place of fringe. Many carved and gilded chairs had gold fringe and braid and were covered with velvet, tapestry or damask. There were many new and elaborate styles of beds that came into fashion at this time. There was the litdunga, which had a canopy that did not extend over the entire bed, and had no pillars at the foot. The curtains were drawn back at the head and the counterpane went over the foot of the bed. There was the litdalcoth, the litdabout, litclus, Lit de glace, with a mirror framed in the ceiling, and many others. A lit de parade was like the great bed of Louis X. Ivy at Versailles. Both the tall and bracket clocks showed the same love of ornament and they were carved and gilded and enriched with chased brass and wonderful inlay by Boulle. The dials also were beautifully designed. Consoles, tables, cabinets, etc. were all treated in this elaborate way. Many of the ceilings were painted by great artists, and those at Versailles painted by Albrun and others, are good examples. There was always a combination of the straight line and the curve, a strong feeling of balance, and a profusion of ornament in the way of scrolls, garlands, shells, the acanthus, anthemion, etc. The moldings were wide and sometimes a torus of laurel leaves was used, but in spite of the great amount of ornament lavished on everything, there is the feeling of balance and symmetry and strength that gives dignity and beauty. Lewis was indeed fortunate in having the great Colbert for one of his ministers. He was a man of gigantic intellect, capable of originating and executing vast schemes. It was to his policy of state patronage, wisely directed, and energetically and lavishly carried out, that we owe the magnificent achievements of this period.
Everywhere the impression is given of brilliancy and splendor gold on the walls, gold on the furniture, rich velvets and damasks and tapestries, marbles and marquetry and painting, furniture worth the king's ransom. It all formed a beautiful and fitting background for the proud king, who could do no wrong, and the dazzling, carefree people who played their brilliant, selfish parts in the midst of its splendor. They never gave a thought to the great mass of the common people who were overburdened with taxation, they never heard the first faint mutterings of discontent which were to grow, ever louder and louder, until the blood and horror of the revolution paid the debt. The Regency and Louis XV when Louis XIV died in 1715, his great-grandson, Louis XV, was but five years old, so Philippe, Duke d'Orléans, became regent. During the last years of Louis XIV's life the court had resented more or less the gloom cast over it by the influence of Madame de Maintenon, and turned with avidity to the new ruler. He was a vain and selfish man, feeling none of the responsibilities of his position, and living chiefly for pleasure. The changing decoration had been foreshadowed in the closing years of the previous reign, and it is often hard to say whether a piece of furniture is late Louis XIV or Regency. The new gained rapidly over the old and the magnificent and stately extravagance of Louis XIV turned into the daintier but no less extravagant and rich decoration of the Regency and Louis XV. One of the noticeable changes was that rooms were smaller, and the reign of the boudoir began. It has been truly said that after the death of Louis XIV came the substitution of the finery of coquetry for the worship of the great in style. There was greater variety in the designs of furniture and a greater use of carved metal ornament and gilt bronze. Beautifully chased. The ornaments took many shapes, such as shells, shaped foliage, roses, seaweed, strings of pearls, etc. and at its best there was great beauty in the treatment. It was during the Regency that the great artist and sculptor in metal, Charles Crescent, flourished. He was made ebonist of the Regent, and his influence was always to keep up the traditions when the reaction against the severe might easily have led to degeneration. There are beautiful examples of his work in many of the great collections of furniture, notably the wonderful commode in the Wallace collection. The dragon mounts of Ormolu on it show the strong influence the Orient had at the time. He often used the figures of women with great delicacy on the corners of his furniture, and he also used tortoise shell and many colored woods in marquetry, but his most wonderful work was done in brass and gilded bronze. In 1723, when Louis was 13 years old, he was declared of age and became king. The influence of the regent was, naturally, still strong, and unfortunately did much to form the character of the young king. Selfishness, pleasure, and low ideals, were the order of court life, and paved the way for the debased taste for Rococo ornament which was one marked phase of the style of Louis XV. The great influence of the Orient at this time is very noticeable. There had been a beginning of it in the previous reign. But during the Regency and the reign of Louis XV it became very marked. Singery and chinoiserie were the rage, and gay little monkeys clambered and climbed over walls and furniture with a careless abandon that had a certain fascination and charm in spite of their being monkeys. The Salon de Singes in the Chateau de Chantilly gives one a good idea of this. The style was easily overdone and did not last a great while. During this time of Oriental influence lacquer was much used and beautiful lacquer panels became one of the great features of French furniture. Pieces of furniture were sent to China and Japan to be lacquered and this, combined with the expense of importing it, led many men in France to try to find out the Oriental secret. Sir Dagley was supposed to have imported the secret and was established at the Gobelins works where he made what was called, Vernies de Gobelins, 
The Martin family evolved a most characteristically French style of decoration from the Chinese and Japanese lacquers. The varnish they made, called Vernie's Martin, gave its name to the furniture decorated by them, which was well sweet to the dainty boudoirs of the day. All kinds of furniture were decorated in this way sedan chairs and even snuff boxes, until at last the supply became so great that the fashion died. There are many charming examples of it to be seen in museums and private collections, but the modern garish copies of it in many shops give no idea of the charm of the original. Watto's delightful decorations also give the true spirit of the time, with their gaiety and frivolity showing the Arcadian affectations the fat of the moment. As the time passed decoration grew more and more ornate, and the followers of Crescent exaggerated his traits. One of these was Jules Aurel Mysomier, an Italian by birth, who brought with him to France the decadent Italian taste. He had a most marvelous power of invention and lavished ornament on everything, carrying the Rocale style to its utmost limit. He broke up all straight lines, put curves and convolutions everywhere, and rarely had two sides alike, for symmetry had no charms for him. The curved endive decoration was used in architraves, in the panels of overdoers and panel moldings, everywhere it possibly could be used. In fact, his work was in great demand by the king and nobility. He designed furniture of all kinds, altars, sledges, candelabra and a great amount of silversmith's work, and also published a book of designs. Unfortunately it is this Rococo style which is meant by many people when they speak of the style of Louis XV. Louis XV furniture and decoration at its best period is extremely beautiful, and the foremost architects of the day were undisturbed by the demand for Rococo, knowing it was a vulgarism of taste which would pass. In France, bad as it was, it never went to such lengths as it did in Italy and Spain. Illustration, the mantel with its great glass reaching to the cornice, the wall panels, paintings over the doors, and beautiful furniture, all show the spirit of the best Louis XV period. The fur rug is an anachronism and detracts from the effect of the room. Illustration, the rare console tables and chairs and the gobelin tapestry. Games of children, show to great advantage in this beautifully proportioned room of soft dull gold. The side and center lights, reflected in the mirror, light the room correctly. The easy generalization of the girl who said the difference between the styles of Louis XV and Louis XVI was like the difference in hair. One was curly and one was straight has more than a grain of truth in it. The curved line was used persistently until the last years of Louis XV's time, but it was a beautiful, gracious curve, elaborate, and in furniture, richly carved, which was used during the best period. The decline came when good taste was lost in the craze for Rococo. Chairs were carved and gilded, or painted, or lacquered, and also beautiful natural woods were used. The sofas and chairs had a general square appearance but the framework was much curved and carved and gilded. They were upholstered in silks, brocades, velvets, damasks in flowered designs, etched with braid, gobelin, aubusson and bovise tapestry, with watto designs, were also used. Nothing more dainty or charming could be found than the tapestry seats and chair backs and screens which were woven especially to fit certain pieces of furniture. The tapestry weavers now used thousands of colors in place of the 19 used in the early days and this enabled them to copy with great exactness the charming pictures of Watto and Boucher. The idea of sitting on beautiful ladies and gentlemen airily playing at country life, does not appeal to our modern taste, but it seems to be in accord with those days. Desks were much used and were conveniently arranged with drawers, pigeonholes and shelves, and roll-top desks were made at this time. Commodes were painted, 
or richly ornamented with lacquer panels, or panels of rosewood or violet wood, and all were embellished with wonderful bronze or ormolu. Many pieces of furniture were inlaid with lovely Sevres plaques, a manner which is not always pleasing in effect. There were many different and elaborate kinds of beds, taking their names from their form and draping. Le Dunlace had a bath, headboard and footboard, and could be used as a sofa. Le Romain had a canopy and four festoon curtains, and so on. The most common form of salon was rectangular, with proportions of four to three, or two to one. There were also many square, round, octagonal and oval salons, these last being among the most beautiful. They all were decorated with great richness, the walls being paneled with carved and gilded or partially gilded wood. Tapestry and brocade and painted panels were used. Large mirrors with elaborate frames were placed over the mantels, with panels above reaching to the cornice or cove of the ceiling, and large mirrors were also used over console tables and as panels. The paneled over doors reached to the cornice, and windows were also treated in this way. Windows and doors were not looked upon merely as openings to admit air and light and human beings, but formed a part of the scheme of decoration of the room. There were beautiful brackets and candelabra of ormolu to light the rooms, and the boudoirs and salons, with their white and gold and beautifully decorated walls and gilded furniture, gave an air of gaiety and richness, extravagance and beauty. An apartment in the time of Louis XV usually had a vestibule, rather severely decorated with columns or pilasters and often statues in niches. The first ante room was a waiting room for servants and was plainly treated, the woodwork being the chief decoration. The second ante room had mirrors, console tables, carved and gilded woodwork, and sometimes tapestry was used above the wainscot. Dining rooms were elaborate, often having fountains and plants in the niches near the buffet. Bedrooms usually had an alcove, and the room, not counting the alcove, was an exact square. The bed faced the windows and a large mirror over a console table was just opposite it. The chimney faced the principal entrance. A chambre and niche was a room where the bed space was not so large as an alcove. The designs for sides of rooms by Mysomir, Blondel, Brissouquils and others give a good idea of the arrangement and proportions of the different rooms. The cabinets or studies, and the guard robes, were entered usually from doors near the alcove. The ceilings were painted by Boucher and others in soft and charming colors, with cupids playing in the clouds, and other subjects of the kind. Great attention was given to clocks and they formed an important and beautiful part of the decoration. The natural consequence of the period of excessive Rococo with its superabundance of curves and ornament, was that, during the last years of Louis's reign, the reaction slowly began to make itself felt. There was no sudden change to the use of the straight line, but people were tired of so much lavishness and motion in their decoration. There were other influences also at work, for Robert Adam had, in England, established the classic taste, and the excavations at Pompeii were causing widespread interest and admiration. The fact is proved that what we call Louis XVI decoration was well known before the death of Louis XVI, by his furnishing Lucien's for Madame du Barry in almost pure Louis XVI style. Illustration, a chair from Fontainebleau, typical of the early Louis XVI the epoch before the development of its full grandeur. Illustration, this Louis XV bargear is especially interesting as it shows the broad seat made to accommodate the full dresses of the period. Louis XVI Louis XVI came to the throne in 1774, and reigned for 19 years, until that fatal year of 93. He was kind, benign, and simple, and had no sympathy with the life of the court during the preceding reign. 
Marie Antoinette disliked the great pomp of court functions and liked to play at the simple life. So shepherdesses, shepherds' crooks, hats, wreaths of roses, watering pots and many other rustic symbols became the fashion. Marie Antoinette was but 15 years old when in 1770 she came to France as a bride, and it is hardly reasonable to think that the taste of a young girl would have originated a great period of decoration. Although the idea is firmly fixed in many minds, it is known that the transition period was well advanced before she became queen, but there is no doubt that her simpler taste and that of Louis led them to accept with joy the classical ideas of beauty which were slowly gaining ground. As Dauphin and Dauphinus they naturally had a great following, and as king and queen their taste was paramount, and the style became established, architecture became more simple and interior decoration followed suit. The restfulness and beauty of the straight line appeared again, and ornament took its proper place as a decoration of the construction, and was subordinate to its design. During the period of Louis XVI the rooms had rectangular panels formed by simpler moldings than in the previous reign with pilasters of delicate design between the panels. The overdoers and mantles were carried to the cornice and the paneling was usually of oak, painted in soft colors or white and gilded. Walls were also covered with tapestry and brocade. Some of the most characteristic marks of the style are the straight tapering legs of the furniture, usually fluted, with some carving. Fluted columns and pilasters often had metal quills filling them for a part of the distance at top and bottom, leaving a plain channel between. The laurel leaf was used in wreath form, and bell flowers were used on the legs of furniture. Oval medallions, surmounted by a wreath of flowers and a bowknot, appear very often, and in about 1780 round medallions were used. Furniture was covered with brocade or tapestry, with shepherds and shepherdesses or pastoral scenes for the design. The gayest kinds of designs were used in the silks and brocades, ribbons and bowknots and interlacing stripes with flowers and rustic symbols scattered over them. Curtains were less festooned and cut with great exactness. The canopies of beds became smaller, until often only a ring or crown held the draperies, and it became the fashion to place the bed sideways. Buddha face. There was a great deal of beautiful ornament in gilded bronze and ormolu on the furniture, and many colored woods were used in marquetry. The fashion of using Sevres plaques in inlay was continued. There was a great deal of white and colored marble used and very fine ironwork was made. Reasoner. Rentgen. Dalvier, Fragonard and Boucher are some of the names that stand out most distinctly as authors of the beautiful decorations of the time. Marie Antoinette's boudoir at Fontainebleau is a perfect example of the style and many of the other rooms both there and at the Petit Trianon show its great beauty, gaiety and dignity combined with its richness and magnificence. The influence of Pompeii must not be overlooked in studying the style of Louis XVI, for it appeared in much of the decoration of the time. The beautiful little boudoir of the Marquise de Serilly is a charming example of its adaptation. The problem of bad proportion is also most interestingly overcome. The room was too high for its size, so it was divided into four arched openings separated by carved pilasters, and the walls covered with paintings. The ceiling was darker than the walls, which made it seem lower, and the whole color scheme was so arranged that the feeling of extreme height was lessened. The mantle is a beautiful example of the period. This room was furnished about 1780-82. Compared to the lavish curves of the style of Louis XV, the fine outlines and the beautiful ornament of Louis XVI appear to some people cold, but if they look carefully at the matter, they will find them not really so. The warmth of the Gallic temperament still shows through the new garb, giving life and beauty to the dainty but strong furniture.
If one studies the examples of the styles of Louis XIV, Louis XV and Louis XVI that one finds in the great palaces, collections, museums and books of prints and photographs, one will see that the wonderful foundation laid by Louis XIV was still there in the other two reigns. During the time of Louis XVI the pose of rustic simplicity was a very sophisticated pose indeed, but the reaction from the rocaille style of Louis XV led to one of the most beautiful styles of decoration that the world has seen. It had dignity, true beauty and the joy of life expressed in it. The Empire the French Revolution made a tremendous change in the production of beautiful furniture, as royalty and the nobility could no longer encourage it. Many of the great artists died in poverty and many of them went to other countries where life was more secure. After the revolution there was wholesale destruction of the wonderful works of art which had cost such vast sums to collect. Nothing was to remain that would remind the people of departed kings and queens, and a committee on art was appointed to make selections of what was to be saved and what was to be destroyed. That committee of tragic comedians set up a new standard of art criticism. It was not the artistic merits of a piece of tapestry, for instance, that interested them, but whether a king or queen dared show their heads upon it. If so, into the flames it went. Thousands of priceless things were destroyed before they finished their dreadful work. When Napoleon came into power he turned to ancient Rome for inspiration. The imperial Caesars became his ideal and gave him a wide field in which to display his love for splendor, and controlled by any true artistic sense. It gave decoration a blow from which it was hard to recover. Massive furniture without real beauty of line, loaded with ormolu, took the place of the old. The furniture was simple in construction with little carving, until later when all kinds of animal heads and claws, and animals never seen by man, and horns of plenty, were used to support tables and chairs and sofas. Everywhere one turned the feeling of martial grandeur was in the air. Ormolu mounts of bay wreaths, torches, eagles, military emblems and trophies, wing figures, the sphinx, the bee, and the initial N were used on furniture, and these same motives were used in wall decoration. The furniture was left the natural color of the wood, and mahogany, rosewood, and ebony, were used, veneer was also extensively used, the front legs of chairs were usually straight, and the back legs slightly curved, beds were massive, with head and footboard of even height, and the tops rolled over into a scroll. Swans were used on the arms of chairs and sofas and the sides of beds. Tables were often round, with tripod legs, in fact. The tripod was a great favorite. There was a great deal of inlay of the favorite emblems but little carving. Plain columns with Doric caps and metal ornaments were used. The change in the use of color was very marked. For deep brown, blue and other dark colors were used instead of the light and gay ones of the previous period. The materials used were usually of solid colors with a design in gold and yellow, a wreath, or a torch, or the bee, or one of the other favorite emblems being used in a spot design, or powdered on. Some of the color combinations in the rooms we read of sound quite alarming. Since the time of the Empire, France has done as the rest of the world has, gone without any special style. English furniture from Gothic days to the period of Queen Anne. The early history of furniture in all countries is very much the same there is not any. We know about kings and queens, and war and sudden death, and fortresses and pyramids, but of that which the people used for furniture we know very little. Research has revealed the mention in old manuscripts once in a while of benches and chests, and the Bayou Tapestry and Old Seals show us that William the Conqueror and Richard Coeur de Lyon sat on chairs, even if they were not very promising ones, but at best it is all very vague. 
it is natural to suppose that the early Saxons had furniture of some kind, for, as the remains of Saxon metalwork show great skill, it is probable they had skill also in woodworking, in England, as in France, the first pieces of furniture that we can be sure of are chests and benches, they served all purposes apparently, for the family slept on them by night and used them for seats and tables by day, the bedding was kept in the chests, and when traveling had to be done all the family possessions were packed in them, there is an old chest at Stoke Dabernon Church, dating from the 13th century, that has a little carving on it, and another at Brampton Church of the 12th or 13th century that has iron decorations. Some chests show great freedom in the carving, St. George and the Dragon and other stories being carved in high relief. Illustration, an apostle's bed of the Tudor period, so called from the carved panels of the back. The over-elaboration of the late Tudor work corresponded in time with France's deterioration in the reign of Henry Ivy. Nearly all the existing specimens of Gothic furniture are ecclesiastical but there are a few that were evidently for household use. These show distinctly the architectural treatment of design in the furniture. Chairs were not commonly used until the 16th century. Our distinguished ancestors decided that one chair in a house was enough, and that was for the master, while his family and friends sat on benches and chests. It is a long step in comfort and manners from the 15th to the 20th century. Later the guest of honor was given the chair and from that may come the saying that a speaker takes the chair. Gothic tables were probably supported by trestles, and beds were probably very much like the early 16th century beds in general shape. There were cupboards and armoires also, but examples are very rare. From an old historical document we learn that Henry III, in 1233, ordered the sheriff to attend to the painting of the wainscoted chamber in Winchester Castle and to see that the pictures and histories were the same as before. Another order is for having the wall of the King's Chamber at Westminster painted a good green color in imitation of a curtain. These painted walls and stained glass that we know they had, and the tapestry, must have given a cheerful color scheme to the houses of the wealthy class even if there was no 